Okay. So the number one thing that I suggest is look at behavior in general. And I know that as soon as we come back from the holidays, teachers are always like, oh, the first week is going to be a mess. They're getting back on the schedule. And and some, especially the students that we treat have difficulty transitioning or the students that we work with have difficulty mm-hmm. transitioning. So we automatically see that. Changes in behavior in general or personality is what I mean more. So if you see a student come in that is typically happy-go-lucky and everything and then is a complete 180. I would start, you know, kind of jotting some things down and just making notes of it. Are they just really tired? Are they, you know, coming in and they stayed up really night uh, late the night before, which we wouldn't know, but that's why you need to kind of just take a look at the students you have and be like, that's kind of unusual. That's kind of unusual. You have the ability to go up and ask them no matter what age and say like, Hey, is everything okay? I noticed that you were a bit, you know, tired today or anything like that. They might answer you. They might not. It's up to them. Um, if you are a safe person to them, the likelihood that they might disclose what's going on is higher. But overall, we have thousands of children that are misdiagnosed with ADHD or emotional behavior disabilities. Hello, family, and welcome back to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I don't know about y'all, but I've been adjusting getting back to the work schedule as a speech therapist and evaluator and entrepreneur and heck, even a dog mom. So I know if I'm overwhelmed and my colleagues are overwhelmed, I can imagine how the students must feel, especially if they're coming from traumatizing environments. And let's even just talk about the weather changes. Many of you are listening to this and you've experienced the cold front that just came through schools closing and having to get back in the house and everything in between that. So I did bring on Rachel Archambault here today um, in this episode. She was my first guest when I started the Pediatric Speech Sister Show in 2023. And I think every year is a great time to refresh ourselves on the different ways that we can empower and support the students that we work with post-holiday season. So get ready to learn with us, laugh with us, and find new pathways to being trauma-informed SLPs. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I'm so excited to have here Rachel Archambault, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P. She is a speech-language pathologist and mental health advocate who specializes in trauma-informed care for individuals with D. I will let her tell you all about herself, but the reason why I do have her on this show today is because as we're gearing up, getting back to school, I don't think that we do a lot of considering the fact that children might have experienced some trauma over the break. And so while a lot of children and staff are kind of refreshed for the new year, some children might be coming back with some underlying trauma. Now, you might be asking me, Melanie, what does this have to do with cultural competency? Well, The reason why it deals with cultural competency is because a lot of the high populations of children who experience trauma, children with lower socioeconomic status, children with disabilities, especially those with mental health disorders and physical disabilities, and children who might have migrated here from warmer climates. I'm especially thinking about children who are coming from 
Latin America, but even in the United States. So there have been bad winter storms across the country this year. A lot of people were stressed out because of flight delays and bad roads. But one thing that has come to me is just the fact that many children bore witness to all the trauma that comes with those freezes. So power outages, car accidents, severe low temperatures, lack of heat in their homes. There's a shortage of food in the grocery store. And some children even just had to stay inside because the weather was just that bad. So Rachel is here today just to tell us a little bit about ways that we can consider preschool and school-age children so that they can best feel supported in those situations when we get back to school. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, uh, so Rachel, I'll go ahead and have you introduce yourself. Yes. Awesome. So my name is Rachel Archambo. I'm a two-time graduate of the University of Central Florida. And some of you may know me on Instagram as the PTSD SLP. And that came from, I worked at a school car called Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Some of you may know that in 2018, there was a mass shooting at that school and while I was at work. So through that, I needed a place to kind of put resources for myself to ask for help of how I can continue supporting my students there. And I made the Instagram PTSD SLP, and it's kind of become a great resource for finding trauma-informed information. Currently, I'm a speech-language program specialist for Broward County Schools, so the same district I was in, and I support 30 elementary and middle schools and all of the SLPs at those schools. So that could be anywhere from zero to like five SLPs at a school. So that's my current role. That's awesome, Rachel. And you will have to excuse me again. There is a little bit of a lag. So I'm going to pause a little bit when I ask a question and just take your time on answering it because I definitely want to hear more from you. Okay. One thing I do want to ask you before we get into the meat of our discussion is what is your why? My why. Um, What's the reason behind joining the field? Yeah. The reason why I joined the field is um, I have two younger brothers. They're 21 months younger than me. They are twins. And they basically had every strike against them to need speech as a child. So we had a speech pathologist come to our house, work with them, and I loved seeing that speech pathologist work with them. She used candy specifically to help them make their sounds and everything. And I'm still to this day a huge sweet tooth. So I wanted to try to go to speech. And growing up, I wanted to replicate being the type of therapist that students want to come to. That therapy is not something that's hidden or a burden to them. I, I wanted to be supportive. So that was how I started in it. And my mom was a teacher and I ended up in the schools pretty much like her, but as an SLP. And I'm glad I found this area of teaching SLPs about trauma-informed care. Well, I know that your family is just so proud to watch you and your journey on this and even just like the genesis and how it started. That's amazing. That's Thank, amazing you. Rachel. Thank you. Thank Now, if you care to share a little bit about what exactly got you into the lane of trauma-informed care. Absolutely. And what your story is behind it. I know that you did mention a bit about, you know, you were in the Parkland shootings, mm -hmm. but would you care to share a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. So like I said, I made the Instagram page PTSD SLP as a way to ask others for help. And realistically, when I came back, we had two weeks off after everything happened there. When I came back, I found it very difficult to care about a 12th grader's inability to say an R sound when they're not feeling safe on campus or they lost friends or they lost a teacher. I could not see how doing data for goals was important in the scheme of things and my students didn't either. So I was trying to find a balance, trying to see what would help them most in the school setting. What did they need from me? And for for many of the kids, it varied. But the biggest thing that they needed was a safe space because they came back to the scene of the crime every single day. So they needed to feel safe in a room on campus. And if I could help in any way to make it a safe space for them, then I would try my hardest to. And I also didn't take offense to students that did not feel that my room was not a safe room for them, or they preferred another teacher or another staff member over me. It is not my job to be everyone's safe space, you know, but my role, I didn't know what it was. So I looked up how to help teenagers with trauma and I found trauma-informed care. And looking over that for the past almost five years now, my way of working with clients, with patients, with people in my personal life has changed, that I'm more trauma-informed. But basically, at the school, we were off for two weeks after that, and the trial just concluded. It was like four months long from the summer to, I think, the end of September, early October. So it's bringing up additional trauma. So my job now through Instagram and through all that is educating others, kind of using my experiences to bridge the gap of understanding, which I think a lot of people need a concrete example of like, I'm not sure what you mean by I could traumatize someone or I'm not sure what you mean by this. So I try to use examples from my experience of working with students that I might have inadvertently triggered, which you can't eliminate all triggers, but bringing up a memory that I thought was a safe memory or just changing my language, which I th- I'm going to talk about a bit later is one of my biggest suggestions for people mm-hmm. wanting to work with any student or client. Yes. Cause that is one thing um, that definitely came to mind is trauma informed care in our profession and within our scope, because when people think of trauma, they think it's more so in the lane of psychologists not so much SLPs. So I'll definitely be asking you, of course, about how we can support those kids who experience trauma over the break or who are coming back from the break with those traumas. But in general, can you just kind of give us some examples of how the two can fit or just like how speech pathologists specifically can still be trauma-informed specialists without stepping outside of our scope of practice? Absolutely. So I believe that our role as speech-language pathologists is to provide trauma-informed, the trauma-informed pillars, which depending on what website you look at, there might be three to eight of them. But it's safety, choice, collaboration, mutuality, trust, understanding cultural gender and intergenerational issues regarding that kind of stuff. If you are not aware of all that, the risk 
you are taking of causing unintentional harm is greater. So by understanding, are you providing choice, collaboration, mutual, mutuality, understanding cultural and gender issues reduces the risk of causing harm to someone unintentionally. That's our goal. I get a lot of questions about being a um, mandatory reporter, which is a whole different lane. As, as a speech pathologist, we are mandatory reporters. If I see a child coming in with bruises all of them, all over them, I would have to, you know, make a report to whoever, whatever institution you're working in. There's a procedure to go about that. A lot of SLPs, though, become trauma detectives. And once they get into trauma-informed care or even ACEs, they're like, I need to know what this child has in, in order to treat them appropriately. And that is not the case at all. Being trauma-informed is saying that you can treat every student a certain way, not knowing their trauma and reduce the risk of harm, re-traumatization, or trauma to that patient, client, whoever you're working with. Okay. So from what I'm hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So what I'm hearing, it's instead of it being more of like an equity sense, because what I'm thinking is just kind of giving everyone what they need specifically, it seems like you were saying just across the board, we need to have these things in mind. I think so, because I there's a lot of people that assume based on who the clientele is that these are trauma kiddos or something like that. And trauma can happen. You might be having a class full of kids that you have bias towards that you're saying those kids have experienced trauma when they're, if you just assume the whole room has experienced a trauma, for example, I working at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a very controlled group. It is a very affluent and white area. I'm thinking of one specific example that we had a teacher come in that was for ROTC and he came directly from the military. So his first day was the first day of the next year. And he was like, he had his notepad and he was just like, who here, how do I know which kid has PTSD? And I could understand from a military standpoint why he was trying to see who had been diagnosed with it. But I came up to him and talked after and I was like, you have to assume that every child on this campus or teacher or staff member, even the parents that are coming on campus has experienced trauma. Not even necessarily from this specific event. We know that this event has cause trauma. We also can't assume that every student here feels that this event was traumatic. Some kids might have been on the other side of campus or don't feel that way about it. So if I change my language, which I didn't really realize until the beginning of this school year, I started a new position or last school year, I changed my language when I was working at campus. So one of the examples is removing violent language. So when I started this new job, a lot of people would say, oh, shoot me a text, shoot me an email. And that is something that would never be said at Douglas. It's not something that we had a conversation about. Really? It was just something that we were like, you can't say that here anymore. You can't say those types of things because it might trigger a memory or make the child feel unsafe or anything like that. So it's very easy for me to change my language and saying, send me a text, send me an email. There's no problem with that. So my first suggestion to people yeah. is work on removing violent language because we don't know what type of violence someone has 
been near, you know? Um, so if we move, remove violent language altogether, it's going to reduce the risk of harm to many, many people all at once. I really like how you mentioned, there's three things I actually want to add. I actually got chills when you were <laughs> talking about, first of all, stepping up to that military officer, that is just the utmost thing that you could have done for those kids. Like that is literally an example of advocacy at its finest, <laughs> like it is Thank purest you. form. So really hats off to you for that. Thank you so much for doing that. The second thing I wanted to say what came up for me and just putting myself in those children's shoes, like as a high schooler and someone's like, who here has PTSD? It's, and the only reason why I laugh is because we don't, you know, as adults, it's just like, think about what the kids might feel, you know, as adults, we might right. be like, well, I have PTSD easily, but as kids, they might feel like there's something wrong with them for even ex one, even experiencing what they experienced. Right. And two, you're already just putting a label on them. Do you like, do you have PTSD? Are you a traumatized kid? Just like you said. So right. thank you for adding to that. One thing about the violent language. I don't know. I was listening to the ASHA podcast. I don't know if this was you on the podcast, but other things like saying I'm dead, like when you're laughing, you're like, oh, I'm dead. I'm so dead. Was that, that was me. That was that? me. That yes. was you. Okay. Yes. That's that was last year when I was yeah. listening to that podcast. And when you said that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I say that all the time. And yeah. I stopped. I stopped saying it because it's not funny to say it now. So I am really happy that you are shining light on this and those trigger words. Thank you. It's, it's just little areas that I have found reduces risk for a ton of people all at once. So if I can change my language just in that instance, and I do try, the phrase I'm dying is so ingrained in our culture of just like, oh, I had a bad workout or a heavy workout and I'm dying, I'm dying, or I'm laughing hysterically, I'm dying. Or, you know, we use this in such ways that if I was talking to a friend of mine that, you know, had a grandparent die last night and that, you know, has that memory right. come up unnecessarily, like, I don't want to be that person. And they might say, oh, it's not a problem. Like, it's okay. You didn't mean it. Or like, I'm not offended by it. Like, I would just rather remove that language and be more direct with what I'm saying. So I right. think that is one step that we can take as speech language pathologists and also in our personal lives to just reduce the risk of harm. harm. Yeah. Thank you again for shining light on that. I do want to get into the questions just like about the holiday, post-holiday season, trauma-informed care. My first question, Rachel, is from your experiences, what are some examples of trauma-inducing events during the holidays and returning to school? Okay. So the first thing that I wanted to make sure I mentioned is that a lot of educators view schools as the safe haven, that no trauma happens there, which we have extensive research to show that trauma happens at school as well. There's a graphic that is going around that mm -hmm. shows ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And those that infographic only gives examples of stuff that would happen at home. And that is not the only place that trauma happens. But over... 
the winter break. So my district is off for two weeks at a time before and after Christmas. I know some schools have been out before that, two weeks before that, and then they come back. But some examples of trauma-inducing events over the holiday season that I can think of, food insecurity, financial insecurity, not able to be themselves at home. So we're talking about those LGBTQ issues. I know in my district, students, especially in high school, are allowed to go by a preferred name that may not be discussed at home at all. They might not know about it and they, that's their right at school. So can you imagine having one identity at school then going home and be like closed into a box at home? So that can be traumatic as well. Otherness yeah. in religion, when you're not the majority uh, at that school, you may might feel otherness. Depression, we know that seasonal depression is real, but as well as... December is the highest uptick in suicides and mental health concerns in general. Grief and loss is especially heavy over the holidays, not even mentioning trauma anniversaries, which many of them that happen over the holidays, that's such a visceral reaction to if, you, if an anniversary happened near Christmas, anything Christmas related might just be a trigger for you. The trauma that I had was on Valentine's Day. So as soon as Christmas is over, the scores, the stores turn into Valentine's Day literally the next day. So the pink and the red and the hearts and the candy is a reaction, you know, as soon as you walk into the mm -hmm. store. So it's imagine that for Christmas time or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate, that might be a trauma anniversary with anything that's available in stores or just decorations in general. Medical trauma due to sickness, I can't tell you how many my friends' kids are sick right now. Like it's cold and flu time and everyone is sick. Mm -hmm. Medical trauma is a trauma yeah. category in its own that might contribute to deaths and grief and loss. And then very cold weather, like you mentioned. This has been a historic winter uh, blizzard that just kind of went through and I'm in Florida so I don't have that experience of what that's like I'm a native Floridian so me dropping me off into Buffalo would just be a traumatic experience to live through that and getting stuck there so you might have kids that went to go visit their families and have never experienced anything like this we deal with hurricanes down here this isn't hurricane season, but it did just end after a pretty terrible hurricane season. So these are all things to consider that we don't know. That, that's what I'm trying to say is we don't know what goes on at home. And it's important for us to, when we come back, be a support system for our students. We are not trying to go, what happened at home? Tell me what happened at home or like, what trauma did you experience at home? But if we can contribute to some safety, mm -hmm. to giving ch children some choice, um, that's a way that we can offer support in the trauma-informed arena. And when you say giving the children some choice, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that look like? So depending on what age you're looking, working with, so one of the pillars of trauma-informed care is choice. So usually when I give examples about what that looks like, it would be choice of different ways that you could do speech therapy with them. So if you have a student that's, you know, you're very organized and everything, you have these lessons, you as the SLP need to be flexible or have a plan of, I'm going to give these three suggestions. 
this is what we can do today, this is what we can do today, and this is what we can do today. Have the student pick so they feel like they have some agency in what they're doing. Also at the high school level, I have no problem with a student telling me I cannot do speech today. I have a massive math test that I need to study for and this is the period that we have a study hall period in our class and they're using that appropriately. Then you have people that comment and they tell me how do you know that they're not taking advantage of it. So I give the benefit of the doubt until they show me that something needs to change. And then that's when I go up to them and I say, hey, you've canceled the last three weeks. Is there any way that we can move that to a different day so this doesn't happen? Or like what, let's have a conversation. What What's happening that you're canceling all the time? Is there something that I can do to make you more comfortable in the speech room? And it is a very difficult thing to have speech as a high schooler. Like, that's why I tried to make it a very comforting, like, cool kids environment because I didn't want to embarrass them. And a Mm -hmm. lot of kids that I got from the middle school were on consultation because they were so traumatized from their parents told me how traumatizing it was from middle school that the, the, it wasn't confidential. It was embarrassing for them at such a critical part of their social identity and everything. So I want the students to be the ones Mm -hmm. to tell me, you know, no, this is my speech pathologist. She's cool. Don't worry about her, (laughs) you know, but that's what I mean by giving Mm -hmm. choice. And if you're working with preschool, if you're working with elementary school, you can still absolutely give them choice in participating with what you are doing in speech or language therapy. Yes. And thank you. Thank you for those examples. I do want to even just touch on the fact that I like how you are taking a person-centered approach rather than like, a oh, this is a child, this is an adolescent, they don't really have much choice or say, I'm the speech pathologist, I'm the one in authority, whatever, whatever. But even with young children, honestly, I think it is important to give them some sort of autonomy, not even just to reach the speech and language goals, even though that is important, but just to create that safe space, like, hey, I'm not here to traumatize you or I'm not here to make you seem smaller than who you are and who you're supposed to be. So I really do like that. I do just, I don't want to get off topic, but I do think this is important as far as trauma goes. I have a friend actually who went through school in the special education system and they marked her as someone with a learning disability and even put her in a self-contained classroom. And so she was bullied from middle school through high school. She even graduated with her self-contained classroom. And yeah, she said that was humiliating. Like she's still, we're far from high school now, but she still lives with that trauma and those insecurities. So again, thank you so much for just emphasizing the fact that it is up to us as the service providers within the special education system to create those spaces. Absolutely. Thank you. So moving on to the next question, Rachel, what are some typical signs of trauma that we should look out for for preschool and school-age children, especially after the holidays or even in general? Okay. So the number one thing that I suggest is look at behavior in general. And I know that as soon as we come back from the holidays, teachers are always like, oh, the first week is going to be a mess. They're getting back on this schedule. And and some, especially the students that we treat have difficulty transitioning or the students that we work with have difficulty mm-hmm. transitioning. So we automatically see that. Changes in behavior in general or personality is what I mean more. So if 
you see a student come in that is typically happy-go-lucky and everything and then is a complete 180, I would start, you know, kind of jotting some things down and just making notes of it. Are they just really tired? Are they, you know, coming in and they stayed up really night uh, late the night before, which we wouldn't know, but that's why you need to kind of just take a look at the students you have and be like, that's kind of unusual. That's kind of unusual. You have the ability to go up and ask them no matter what age and say like, Hey, is everything okay? I noticed that you were a bit, you know, tired today or anything like that. They might answer you, they might not, it's up to them. Um, If you are a safe person to them, the likelihood that they might disclose what's going on is higher. But overall, we have thousands of children that are misdiagnosed with ADHD or emotional behavior disabilities when they are trauma signs. The ADHD signs and trauma signs completely overlap. So that could be difficulty concentrating and learning in school, easily distracted, often doesn't seem to listen, disorganization, hyperactive, restless, and difficulty sleeping. So I've known teachers over the years that will just label a kid a bad kid. And if we took the time to say, is this something else? Is this trauma? Is this ADHD? Is this, you know, something else going on? We wouldn't have those labels of that's a bad kid, but they're not taking the time to learn that. Overall, preschool and elementary school children have a lot of similarities of signs that something traumatic might have happened. Preschool children will tend to reenact it using play when elementary school children will talk about the traumatic event. So that is one difference between them. And it's also hard to go over the signs of it because I don't want you to think that, oh, I have an elementary school kid and they're not showing this sign. That doesn't mean they have trauma or vice versa. I don't want you to say, oh, they have all these things. Oh, yes, they've experienced trauma. It's just a way of you gathering notes and, and seeing if this is a big personality change and what you can do about it. So preschool children might feel helpless and uncertain, fear of being separated from their parent or caregiver. They might cry and scream a lot. They might eat poorly and lose weight, return to bedwetting, which some of these things you might not know. Some parents might not be like, oh yeah, there has been a change. They're, you know, regressing with that. Uh, Return to using baby talk. Teachers might have that um, ability to see that more in the school. Develop new fears, have nightmares, recreate the trauma through play, are not developing to the next growth rate, have changes in behavior, or ask questions about death a lot. For the elementary school children, they might become anxious and fearful, worry about their own or other safety, become clingy with a teacher or parent. And I know, like, I don't want some SLPs to be like, oh, this one all of a sudden got clingy with me, trauma. You can't jump to conclusions like that. It's it's just gathering data, feeling guilt or shame, tell others about traumatic events again and again, become upset if they get a small bump or bruise, have a hard time concentrating, experience numbness, have fears that the event will happen again, have difficulty sleeping, slow changes in school performance, and become easily startled. And I know that in the high school setting, we were all very like jump scare, you know, and still to this day, a lot of us are. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to have these written out signs and symptoms of how you might be able to tell a child has undergone trauma, but they are not all inclusive and they also don't 
mean that a child has experienced trauma. Something else might have happened. Maybe something scared them that morning, you know, and they're on edge about it, but it doesn't mean they have trauma mm -hmm. or that there's PTSD. That's another separation. Just because you have trauma does not mean that you mm -hmm. have PTSD. Wow. And where can we find that resource that has the different signs and symptoms that you just mentioned? That one is from cctsi.northwestern.edu. And that is under the What is Child Trauma page. And it is a great resource to look at of all these signs. But again, it's not all inclusive of signs that you might see. And I, I also thank you for saying that it's not all inclusive because there's definitely, there's definitely more. So it is also up to us to get curious about it and continue to do our research. What are some ways that we can help this population when a PTSD episode occurs? Okay. So a PTSD episode looks different for everyone. For me, what that looks like is I usually freeze and I'm trying to gather info. So I feel like my pupils are like as big as my eyes, you know, that I'm trying to gather any information of what's happening. If I hear a noise, my ears are on hyper hearing mode that I can hear a pin drop from, from a mile away. I'm trying to get information to figure out what is happening. Am I safe? Like we talked about before, I changed my language to prevent trauma, like violent language. And I actually learned that term violent language through someone that was attending one of my presentations. She said that her daughter was working at a domestic violence clinic and they make them remove violent language because if you're working with a community that you know has experienced this one specific trauma, you should remove that language in order to prevent hurting people. Um, so a PTSD episode, um, my friends know how to deal with me that they'll give me space to process. Um, they ask if I need anything and sometimes I might answer and sometimes I might not. If I don't, don't keep asking, what do you need? Like, just let me figure it out. And I don't want to be touched during that time. However, some children might want to be touched during that time. Their safety might be a hug, you know? So many children will need you to help them regulate using co-regulating, you know, strategies. That might be a hug. That might be just talking to them. Getting down on their level might help a lot because if you're this tall person and me at 5'3", I'm not a tall person, but I'm taller than a three foot, you know, little kid. That's an authoritative stance. Mm -hmm. And to get down on their level is much less scary, gives space, offer a hug. So I would never just go up and hug a child. I would ask, do you need a hug? And they might say yes, they might say no. You can offer a, let's go for a walk. Do you need a fidget? What I really like about this upcoming generation, and even in our district, we have social emotional learning as a mandatory like teaching moment throughout the day. So the earlier that students are getting this information, the earlier they're going to be able to help regulate themselves. Part of what was difficult with Stoneman Douglas was we had teachers, staff, students that didn't have coping strategies to use. So we were all dysregulated all over the place. And once I started going to therapy, once I started realizing what my triggers were, I was able to prevent meltdowns. If I knew that there was a fire alarm coming on or a fire drill that we knew that the fire alarm was coming on, I had those sound mute things 
I gave those to certain Mm -hmm. students that were in my room and not necessarily in my room, the ones that were around campus, I gave them to carry it in their backpack in case that happened so that they would be able to, you know, continue through that. But the more that we're teaching students about social emotional Mm -hmm. learning and coping strategies and what their triggers are, they're able to regulate themselves. So I think that's a, a big benefit, but the best thing that you can do for someone who is experiencing an episode, a trigger, anything. It might look like a freeze. It might look like a fight that they're angry or they're they're running away. Give them space and ask what they need. If they're not answering, just wait. Give them time to process, just like we do with our students when we're, we need wait time, especially when we're dysregulated. Right. We need, as someone with PTSD, we need wait time. Yeah, because one thing I'm thinking about is some adults, um, and yeah, it's okay. I know you hear my dogs outside. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Some adults will see a kid and be like, oh, do you need a hug? Do you need a hug? And then the kid will say, no, I don't need a hug. They're like, oh, I think you need a hug. And then they'll just go ahead and give the kid a hug. But no, don't do that. You know, a lot of it could be a cultural thing. I know in African-American cultures, it's like, yes. no, you need a hug. Come on, give me a hug. But no, um, that that is even, you know, just, again, cultural awareness too. Absolutely. Just understanding when someone says that they need their space. Yes, they need their space. So thank you so much, Rachel. Um, are there any other resources that you would recommend to speech pathologists and educators who might be listening to this who want to dive deeper into this topic? Yes. So first of all, Trauma-Informed Oregon is where I first found out about trauma-informed care. So I recommend looking at that. SAMHSA, S-A-H-M-S-A, is where we get a lot of our definitions for trauma. So you can look at that. Also, if you want to dive into some books, The first one that I recommend is What Happened to You by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. I think that is a great intro book. I know some people, when they start, they dive into The Body Keeps a Score, and that is way too information heavy to the point that many people start it and they don't finish it. I think the book by by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry is, it's a conversation. The audio book is fantastic. And Oprah does kind of trauma dump in that. And what I mean is, you know, she has conversations about her upbringing, which we all know she had a very traumatic upbringing. So there are some things that you can definitely close the book, take a break. And I love that there's a a warning in the beginning in the book that says, you know, you don't need to read this all at once. Close the book, take some time, reflect. And we constantly as providers need to be reflecting on ourselves. When are we triggered? So we can be the best SLP that we can, because if I'm dysregulated, I'm not going to be able to regulate a student. If I'm angry and I'm not using coping strategies to get myself back to regulated, my students aren't going to gain anything from that. So we need to be aware of that. There are a ton of books out there, but I think the best place to start is Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry's book. And I I think some websites are great. I hesitate to, I I haven't done many of the trauma-informed certifications that are out there. Number one, because they are very expensive, over $2,000. I've seen some of them and that's not equitable. That's not where we're, some of us are on a teacher salary. I'm not going to be able to pay that. I'm not going to suggest something to my followers that, hey, if you want to learn about this, $2,000 right here. So 
I think you can learn a lot about this right. through online and through a lot of these books that talk about what is trauma-informed care. And there's a, a lot out there, a lot to learn. Also, The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris is one of my other favorite books. She has a great TED Talk about trauma. Yes, and you are so right. Body Keeps Score. I did start with that book. And it's it, really, the author is brilliant. But it's almost like reading it brings up the trauma for me. And it is very information heavy. So I I just keep having to just get the key points from it. It's really hard to get through. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on today. Is there anywhere where people can reach out to you if they have any more questions on this topic? Yes. Please feel free to message me on Instagram. It is ptsd.slp. I also have a Facebook group that's PTSD resources for SLPs. Feel free to add yourself. That's more of a discussion board that people will post things they see on Facebook about trauma-informed care or trauma-informed ways of being. And it's great. On Instagram, though, is where I'm most active. So feel free to message me, ask me questions, or just suggest topics for me to research for you. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I do definitely hope to have you on here again. We can dig into trauma for days yes, and please. how we can be effective and at least just helping mitigate that, especially for our kiddos. Yeah. So I thank you again so much. And I just commend you for the work that you're doing and for lack of better terms, turning lemon into lemonade, just turning that very traumatic experience to live through and just using it to empower you, empower other professionals and empower your students. So thank you again. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I could come on and talk forever about this. So please have me back. <laughs> oh, oh, I will. Trust me. <laughs> <I> will. <laughs> thank you so much, Rachel.